Welcome to the First Take Podcast. On this week's episode, we have Simon King, Virginia Lee, and myself, Michael Flanagan, and we will be digging into three key topics, uh, more momentum for Pfizer's COVID-19 antiviral to start out, followed by Bristol-Myers Squibb, who lays out its long-term growth strategy, and finally, Biogen's Week to Forget. So please like and subscribe, and thank you for listening. So this week saw further developments in the field of COVID-19 antiviral medicines, including Roche's decision to walk away from a partnership with Atia Pharmaceuticals to co-develop the drug AT527. Now, last month, it was revealed that in a phase two study, AT527 had failed to significantly reduce viral load in COVID-19 outpatients with mild to moderate disease versus placebo. As a result, and prior to this week's announcement, Atia and Roche had amended the design of an ongoing phase three study to instead focus on high-risk unvaccinated patients. Consequently, however, the data from that trial is now expected in the second half of 2022. Okay, so the question that comes to mind for me, Simon, is do you think the that delay to that readout has prompted Roche's decision this week? Well, I think it's probably played a role, but I suspect not in isolation. And I think the other thing we've got to take into account is that there's been notable changes to the competitive environment in the field of COVID-19 antivirals in the last six weeks or so. In early October, and this is prior to the phase two readout for A2527, Merck had already disclosed initial data for a similar drug showing a 50% reduction in the risk of hospitalization and death among high-risk adults. And then more recently, Pfizer's shown an impressive 89% reduction in the risk of hospitalization and death versus placebo for its own antiviral drug, which is called Paxlovid. Now, notably, Paxlovid is also a different type of drug in comparison to the Merck and Atia molecules. It's a protease inhibitor, which is administered in combination with the HIV therapeutic ritonavir. Sure. So can we assume then that Roche perhaps thinks Pfizer's approach, I know the ATN and Merck drugs target viral RNA polymerase instead, is clearly superior? Well, I think there's always caveats to be made in terms of, you know, cross-trial comparisons, but clearly based on the data that we have so far, you know, the Pfizer drug appears to be more effective. And in, in recent days, it now seems to have momentum in its favor as well. Pfizer confirmed this week that it's now filed Paxlovid in the US for emergency use authorization. And it was confirmed today that the US government's uh, planning to spend about $5 billion on 10 million doses of Paxlovid to help domestic response to the pandemic. And this is notable because the government previously agreed to acquire 3 million doses of Merck's antiviral. So it clearly seems to think that the Pfizer drug has a bigger role to play. And Furthermore, you know, analysts at Barclays this week said that based on this reported contract and the price that they think Pfizer can sell Paxlovid at in developed markets, you know, it could generate sales of between 15 billion and 25 billion dollars next year. You know, this speaks to the potential size of the market in the near term as governments like the US look to stockpile antiviral supplies but also arguably frames, I think, the decision by Roche to abandon AT527 
in a more unfavourable light from Atia's perspective. You know, it suggests, to my mind at least, that Roche has lost a lot of confidence in the drug. So also this week, Bristol-Myers hosted an R&D day providing an overview of their pipeline and laying out revenue expectations in the coming years. So Virginia, what were some of the key highlights from Bristol's R&D day? So we know the major cloud hanging over Bristol-Myers in the near term is the loss of exclusivity coming up for Revlimid next year. And during their call this week, the management team said that by 2025, they expect a quarter of total company revenue to be coming from new products and then another 50% from their anticoagulant Eliquis and Updevo plus Yervoy. And in the subsequent years, they're expecting new product growth to offset the loss of exclusivity for Eliquis and Updevo, which will begin going off patent in the latter half of the decade. And one of the late stage products that got some attention this week was Milvexian. That's their next gen anticoagulant. And that's a factor 11A inhibitor that they're developing with Johnson & Johnson. And this week they reported phase two data showing efficacy that was similar to marketed anticoagulants, but without the bleeding risks associated with those products. And that was in prevention of venous thromboembolism in patients who had undergone knee surgery. So that's a product that they're hoping will be a follow-on to Eliquis. And you know, Eliquis is a $10 billion per year drug that's going off patent in 2028. So that could be a big one for them. And BMS will be awaiting data next year from another phase two study of Milvexian and start phase three testing after that. Great. I mean, in terms of the stuff that I saw about the R&D day was this mention of neuroscience as a therapeutic area of interest. You know, struck me as interesting because BMS exited neuroscience drug discovery back in 2013 at a time when there were several big farmers doing exactly the same. What are their plans in, in neurology moving forward? Yeah, so this was an interesting point in their call, and Bristol's CEO named neuroscience as one of five focus areas for their BD team going forward. So they're looking at small to medium bolt-on acquisitions in that space. And when you look at their deal history over the last couple of years, you'll see a handful of early stage neuroscience collaborations already. So some of those were inherited from Celgene, others are more recent. Um, one example is that through the Celgene takeout, Bristol had a broad research collaboration with a company called Dragonfly, which is developing programs targeting natural killer cells and other types of innate immune cells. And just last year, they expanded that partnership to include therapeutics for MS and against neuroinflammation targets. Um, and then in the last six months, they've actually exercised options to in-license two clinical neurodegenerative disease programs from Prothena and from Evotech. So that is building out this small early stage pipeline that they have that now includes four phase one programs in neuroscience in total. So they've been making small steps to return to neuroscience and we should expect to see more deal activity there going forward. All right, last up we have Biogen, which is probably looking forward to the final bell on Friday so it can regroup over the weekend and get a fresh start on Monday. So this week started off uh, on the wrong foot on Monday when Biogen's longtime head of R&D, Al Sandrath, revealed sort of seemingly out of the blue that he is going to be retiring from the company by year end. And this was followed the very next day by news that Adyuhelm had been voted down by EMA's, EMA's CHMP, suggesting that the European application is very likely 
to be officially rejected next month. So the big question here, Michael, is what is the impact of these for Biogen? Yeah, so I think alone, uh, you know, in a vacuum, the, these updates aren't necessarily crippling to the Biogen thesis, but taken together, uh, especially in combination with sort of the increasingly negative sentiment that has been surrounding the company recently, you know, the, the news sort of contribute to a sense that Biogen is you know, feeling kind of rudderless at the moment. So the backdrop here, obviously, is that Biogen has reported declining sales in successive years. So, you know, basically their legacy products, mostly MS, have been hit hard by generics. The SMA drug, sort of one of their newer growth drivers, uh, Spinraza, is now sort of facing a lot of competition from branded rivals. So they're just, they're facing a lot of competition. And then Adyahelm was supposed to be uh, this knight in shining armor, so to speak, when it got approved this uh, spring, I think it was in June. So, you know, basically that controversial decision by the FDA was thought to give the give the green light to Biogen that they were basically going to, you know, turn this uh, Adyahelm Alzheimer's drug into like a mega blockbuster. But obviously uh, things have not gone to plan. And, you know, Andy Helm reported, I think they posted 300,000 in sales last quarter. So, you know, that's a far cry from the, the 10 billion or so that some analysts were projecting as soon as 2023. So, you know, that's the backdrop, obviously things not going great. Then you add in um, the Andy Helm decision in Europe, which isn't necessarily a huge blow, a blow because you know this financially was not supposed to be a, a huge success in in Europe where you know there's price controls and that sort of thing. Uh, also, it was risk adjusted because you know people were expecting the EMA might have a little um, might take a different opinion of of the questionable data set than the FDA did. And then on the other hand, you got losing Alessandroff, which feels pretty important because you know this is a company that has sort of prided itself on being an innovative science first company and Sandrock was really sort of the leading scientist at the company so the fact that he is now heading out will just sort of add to the the feeling that um you know they they just don't have a, a solid proactive plan for where they're going so we'll see we'll see what happens um obviously the the next shoe to drop is the NCD that will come from CMS and will decide, you know, whether Adyahelm is going to be covered under Medicare. That's expected early next year. And that will be uh, obviously a huge inflection point, at least according to Biogen. Um, so we'll see. And, and beyond the effect on Biogen itself, do you think there will be broader ripples from the EMA's Adyahelm decision? It seems likely. Um, you know, as it would appear right now anyway, that EMA is taking a very different approach than the FDA. So the FDA approved Adyahelm, again, very controversially, and that sort of suggested to drug makers that um, it's going to be open season in the U.S. So companies like Eli Lilly um, said, you know what, fine, we'll, we'll do this. Um, so Denanamab, I believe, is supposed to be submitted for approval later this year. People were thinking maybe Roche might try and follow suit. So far, it sounds like Roche has not um, made up its mind, but doesn't really seem to be leaning that way. It sounds like they're going to wait for phase three data. But the, the obvious sort of suggestion here is that EMA is going to take a, um, they're going to hold the line, so to speak, 
uh, and want actual phase three data demonstrating you know cognitive improvement or functional improvement and not approve a drug based solely on amyloid reduction which is basically what what Adihelm showed so um that's the the story in europe um i think if you're really trying to dig down in sort of what company may um be affected most this might actually be a good thing for roche since they are closest to the phase three finish line with their gantanarumab uh, data is expected in, or i think in the first half of next year so that may put them in the driver's seat in europe but i guess we'll just have to see